Welcome to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. Now, on today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is going to be wrapping up his series in the book of Ephesians as he looks at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20. Now, if you live in Fayetteville or anywhere in northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we would invite you to come and worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road. Now, if you have questions about our church, you can contact us through email at info at calvaryfayetteville.com or call us at 479-442-4634. Now, let's listen together as Pastor Kurt shares a message from Ephesians 6, 10-20, entitled, Spiritual Warfare Requires Spiritual Weapons. Well, this will be our last uh, message from the book of Ephesians for a while. I realize we've skipped over a few verses. Uh, most notably, perhaps, are the uh, verses, paragraph just preceding what we will uh, talk about and read today. But if that's all right, we'll save that for another time. I'd like to uh, talk about what he says about masters and servants in maybe a larger context because, um, uh, well, it'll just take a little bit of time to unpack what the Lord has there. But I want to talk today about uh, spiritual warfare. And that too is a pretty big topic. And it's one that generally you'll uh, notice that churches and pastors and preachers make one of two mistakes either totally neglecting the subject of spiritual warfare or, on the other hand, becoming obsessed by it and going into some really crazy notions. And so we want to only spend one message with it because next Sunday, Lord willing, we want to uh, spend the month of December focused on the Christmas, the Advent season, and... Uh, I want to give you a, a lot of information today. Hopefully some of it will be helpful to you um, somewhere. Now, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, along with Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, are referred to as prison epistles. Do you understand why they are called that? Because they are written while the Apostle Paul is in prison to those churches, and in the case of Philemon, uh, to that individual brother in Christ. They were written from prison. Now, whenever I come to Ephesians 6 and Paul's teaching regarding the spiritual armor, I think of this picture uh, or one like it. I think we have to put it on the screen, and you also have it uh, on the, if I remember the cover or the front of your worship guide. You see, it's the Apostle Paul there writing one of his epistles and looking over his shoulder is a Roman soldier. I don't know for sure how it all took place. I don't know for sure what um, the motivation was. I do know that it was inspired by the Lord and by God the Holy Spirit for Paul to write these words in verses 10 through 20 as he's beginning to wind up his letter to the Ephesians with this description of spiritual armor. And actually years ago, maybe a couple of two or three decades ago, I remember seeing a picture a little bit like this, but different, 
I see Paul sitting at a table, and he seems to be a little bit meditative. He's not writing at the moment. He is gazing at the Roman guard over by the door, and perhaps in some kind of scenario such as this, he is inspired to write and to draw the corollaries, the similarities between Christian armor and the armor of a Roman soldier. Now understand that if you lived anywhere in the Mediterranean area in the days of the Apostle Paul, you would have been very accustomed to seeing soldiers like this everywhere. Rome controlled their empire by power, by the best equipped army in the entire world. And every piece of their armor was very important. The helmet, the breastplate, the leather belt around their waist. And, and even most importantly, believe it or not, the shoes, which were almost like boots that they wore. They were more similar to hobnail boots than they were sandals. And the reason it's often said that Rome conquered the world is they conquered the world by the shoes that they wore. Why? Because often fighting barbarian people who wore uh, sandals or sometimes nothing, they could hold their ground. They were almost more like a, a, a cleated boot and, and they could stand their ground. In fact, a Roman soldier was taught and trained to just mentally mark off a six-foot square around where he stood and with his armor and with his boots to stand his ground and with that short sword to defend that six-by-six six square against anybody that would come against it. And oftentimes, you would find a Roman soldier may be dead, but around him, 10, 20 maybe even 30 dead bodies of those that he killed, and they conquered the world in this way. Well, whatever the inspiration was, however the Holy Spirit brought it to the Apostle Paul, we find that he begins to describe what it means to be a good soldier and a good soldier of Christ. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of, Christ, a word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, 
that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, what we know not, we ask you to teach us. What we have not, we ask you to give us. What we are not, we ask you to make us. And we pray this for thy name's sake. Amen. Three realities. Three realities about spiritual warfare that in order to live a victorious Christian life, you must know and understand. Number one, spiritual warfare is real. Spiritual warfare is real. Often when we say spiritual warfare or spiritual weapons or spiritual living, we tend to relegate it to maybe something that is not real, that is not tangible, uh, that is not uh, something that you can be sure of. But spiritual, which usually means taking place in the invisible world, spiritual does not mean less real at all. I would suggest to you that spiritual realities are more real than the physical world that you know. Why do I say that? Because the physical world that you and I know and live is a world that is passing away. It is a world that is not eternal. What is your life? It is even a vapor, James tells us. It appears for just a little while. It, it's, the, it's the vapor that comes off the top of the tea kettle. Now you see it, now you don't. That's what this physical life is all about. It's temporary, it passes away. But that which is spiritual is eternal. It has eternal consequences, not only in this life, but in the next. So spiritual warfare, though you cannot see it, you see the effects of it, understand that it is real. The Bible tells us that there are two kingdoms that war against each other in this world. Paul's words to the Colossians in chapter 1 verse 13 is a great example where he says, he, speaking of God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's one world. And he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's the other world. That's the other kingdom. The domain of darkness and the domain or the kingdom of his beloved son, sometimes referred to as the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Now, it's important to understand this. While there are two kingdoms, this is not some kind of Star Wars kind of existence. Don't think of it as two equal powers that, that, that are vying for control, that though they are two different kingdoms, it's not just a light side and a dark side. It is not some kind of Harry Potter's world of magic. Understand it's real. 
It has eternal consequences, and it is the kingdom of his dear son that is the domain of God himself that is ultimately victorious over all the kingdom of darkness and the domain of Satan. Now, if you want to think about some examples of this spiritual warfare, there are tons of them in the Bible. Let me give you uh, four or five Old Testament examples, a few New Testament examples. In the Old Testament, way back in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, you remember how Lucifer, identifying as a serpent, came and tempted uh, Eve and drew her away to disobey God, he deceived her, and how that her husband Adam chose to partake in that sin and disobedience to God, uh, and we find that the, the Lord comes along and speaks to the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity, that means hatred, between you and the seed of the woman, and there will be a perpetual war that will take place between you and your followers and the descendants of Adam and Eve. And specifically in reference to the descendant, capital D, of Adam and Eve, which will be Jesus. And it said, he said, you serpent, you Lucifer, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. He will destroy you. And so there is a perpetual warfare between Satan and the followers, the descendants of Adam and Eve. We find an Old Testament example that is only mentioned in the New Testament, that little book of Jude, way over towards the very end of the New Testament. In Jude verse 3, this man of God tells us, Michael did war with Satan, with Lucifer. They contended over the body of Moses. Do you remember that God would not let Moses enter the promised land when they got to uh, where they could see it? But God led him up to a mountain all alone. And he allowed him to look over and to see the promised land, the width of it, the length of it. And there Moses died alone. And for some reason, for some reason we don't know, Satan was going to take the body of Moses and do something, do something that would further his evil work. But God sent Michael the archangel who contended, who fought with Lucifer, fought with Satan over the body of Moses. It was spiritual warfare. You have another example in Job chapter 1. In Job chapter 1, you have Satan coming with the other angels to present himself to God. Evidently, Satan still has access to some degree to heaven. He doesn't live there. He's been kicked out of there. But he has access. He's called the accuser of the brethren. And the book of Revelation tells us the, uh, the accuser of the brethren will be ultimately cast out. But in the meantime, you find in Job 1, Satan accusing Job before God. And it's spiritual warfare. You find Satan got permission to tempt and test Job. In 2 Kings chapter 6, I love this story. I wish I could just spend all morning on it. Here's Elisha. He is a prophet of God. 
and the Syrian army is continually fighting against Israel. But every time the, they, the, the Syrians strategize and make battle plans, whatever is spoken of in the commander's secret tent with just his generals, uh, God the Holy Spirit goes and tells those plans to Elisha, the prophet of God. And the uh, prophet of God warns the Israelites, and they continually thwart all the plans of the Syrians. And so the Syrian commander is getting very frustrated about this, and he said, why is it that everything that I say in my, the privacy of my tent with my generals, how come they know it? And someone had insight, and they said, there is a prophet in Israel that hears and knows it, and his name is Elisha. So the Syrian commander said, okay, let's go get Elisha. So early one morning, Elisha and his servant have spent the night in a little village called Dothan. And the servant goes outside. I can just imagine early morning, the sun just peeking over the horizon. And he's wiping the sleep from his eyes, waiting for the coffee to brew back in the kitchen. You know how it is. And he is there, and, and he is uh, stretching, and he looks up. And on all the hills surrounding this, this village is the Syrian army. They are trapped like rats. And he goes rushing back in and tells Elisha, Elisha, the Syrians have found us. They've got us encircled. And Elisha prays a simple prayer. He said, Lord, let him go out there and see what's really going on. And the servant goes back outside, and you know what he sees? All of a sudden, he has a spiritual insight. He can see into the spirit world, and he sees that the Syrian army is surrounded by the Lord's host, the army of angels of heaven. They are being protected. But he could not see that before. He did not know that before. Another example, and, and we'll move on to the New Testament, Daniel chapter 10. Daniel has a vision from the Lord, and uh, he, he's trying to understand it. He prays for an answer. And he prays, and he prays, and he prays, but no answer comes for 21 days. For three weeks, he waits for an answer. And all of a sudden, Michael shows up, the archangel, and Michael brings an, an, an answer from God to uh, Daniel. And this is what we need to draw assurance from. I, I don't know what all is going on in the spirit world. I, I can't see it. I'm not a prophet. But understand, this angel said, Michael said, Daniel, from the first day you prayed, God heard you. God heard you, and God sent me with an answer. But the prince of Persia rose up against me, and for 21 days I've been fighting him, and finally I've been able to break away from him and come to you with the answer from God. Who was the prince of Persia? Well, I'll tell you this, it was not a man. It was some great and powerful fallen angel, some demonic being that had enough power to, to at least for 21 days to hold Michael to a draw before Michael the archangel got away from him. Spiritual warfare is taking place. We see it in the New Testament. 
In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus goes into the wilderness after his baptism, and he is tempted directly by Satan. You remember that story, how Satan tempted him uh, in the wilderness at least three times. In Luke chapter 22, you find Jesus saying to Peter, Peter, Satan has desired to have you. Satan has received you by asking for you. And he wants to sift you like wheat. But Peter, understand I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail. And when you have been converted, when you have made a full surrender to me, you will be able to strengthen your brethren. We find that Satan, or that Peter, went through a very tough time before the crucifixion of Jesus, and it wasn't until afterwards that a real change took place in his life. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. There he is praying, and the weight is so great on him that he sweat great drops of blood. Now, I want to tell you something. Most of you, if you're not careful, you have a wrong idea about that about what took place. Because you find and you remember that Jesus prayed, Father, if it be your will, what? Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And oftentimes we imagine Jesus at the last minute, even though he had been living with his eyes on the cross and moving towards the cross from the day of his birth, that the night before he was looking for rescue or deliverance from the cross. Nothing like that at all. I'm going to tell you what took place in the Garden of Eden. All the host of hell came against Jesus to try to prevent him from ever getting to the cross. And he had to contend with Lucifer himself to the point that he sweat great drops of blood. And he persevered through prayer and in fellowship with his father. And he experienced the cross the next day and purchased our salvation at the cross. Spiritual warfare, Old Testament, New Testament, all the way through, it's very real. And it's real in our text. What did he say in verse 12? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. In other words, in the spirit world. Notice the words rulers, authorities, and powers. You'll find those words used other places in the New Testament. They always refer specifically to the hierarchy of demons in Satan's kingdom. Just like an army, just like the army of heaven, Michael the archangel, Gabriel, a, a messenger angel. There are uh, uh, there is a hierarchy of power and, and of influence. And in the evil world, the same thing is true. I believe that there are regional, that there are, like the prince of Persia, there are very powerful fallen angels that control areas of the world and have armies beneath them. They are very highly 
organized. And he said, we don't fight against flesh and blood. It's against all of these fallen angels, these demons, these rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness. And they work and their forces of evil are at work in the spirit world. He referred in verse 16 to the flaming darts of the evil one, the flaming arrows of the evil one. So, point number one, spiritual warfare is real. Point number two, Satan's wiles, meaning his schemes, his deceitfulness, Satan's wiles are real. Satan is a very real enemy of our souls. What did he say in verse 11? Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes, the wiles, the deceitfulness, the deception of the devil. There was once a comedian that made a whole career out of saying, the devil made me do it. <laughs> you remember? Well, I'm going to tell you something. The devil hadn't ever made you do anything that you didn't go along with him and partner with him in it, if you're a child of God. The devil is powerful. He has many tools in his toolbox, and he is at work everywhere. Now, it's important that while his influence is everywhere, understand this, Satan is not everywhere. God is omnipresent. The devil is not. The devil is confined to time and space. Now, he may be in this room, though I doubt it. He probably has, in a lot of places, bigger fish to fry, so to speak, than you and me. But I want you to know, guess what? His influence is in this room. <clears throat> unless Satan, or unless the Lord has limited this place and put a hedge of protection around us, which possibly he has, there are demons, fallen angels in this room, influencers, distractions, things that would rob the Word of God from taking root in your heart. But even if there are not demons or fallen angels in this room, understand this, you are a sinner and so am I. And our very sin nature, if we're not careful, will draw us away from the truth that God would have us to know even today. Satan is not omnipresent, but his demons are innumerable. These are the fallen angels. Where do they come from? Why do we say fallen angels? Because sometime in eternity past, we can read about it in the book of Isaiah. I believe it's about chapter 14. We find that Lucifer, who was the highest of all the angelic host, who was higher probably than Michael or Gabriel, Lucifer described as the anointed cherub that covereth. Lucifer, who was the worship leader of heaven, of all the heavenly hosts, decided he wanted the throne of the Father. He wanted God's throne. That he wasn't satisfied to be second or third or whatever. He wanted to be Lord of all. And he led a rebellion in heaven 
to overthrow God, and that is unsuccessful every time. Every time you and I disobey, we're leading our own private rebellion against God, trying to overthrow God from being the Lord and the master of our lives. Did you know that? When you are unwilling to obey and follow Him, you're leading your own rebellion. And it's an unsuccessful. And so the Father cast Lucifer out of heaven. That's why Jesus said it was, a, it was a, uh, an insight to his divinity that he was God in the flesh. That's why he said in Matthew, I saw Lucifer fall like lightning from heaven. Well, only God could have seen that. He saw it. The book of Revelation has a little suggestion to us when it refers to that dragon that with his tail, that he, he swiped a third of the stars of heaven out of the sky. The stars of heaven in Revelation often refers to angelic beings. And it's a suggestion that perhaps as many as a third of all the angels joined in his rebellion and were cast out and were cast down just like he was. Well, these who were cast down, these have become his demons, the ones who do his bidding, his army in this world. And so while he is never in all places at all times, understand his fallen angels, his demons, his influence, our sinful nature, we are always in the presence of evil and temptation. You cannot hide from it in this life. But you can fight it. Now, we can talk a lot more about that, but can I take just a few minutes and tell you about how Satan works in your life and in mine most effectively? I want to talk to you for a few minutes about strongholds. Strongholds. You know what a stronghold is in this life? A stronghold is a fortified place. A highly defensible place, a castle, if you will, a fortress, if you will. Satan's desire, listen to me, folks, every one of you now, Satan wants to build strongholds in your life. He wants to have a place in your life where you cannot hardly be successful against him. It's a strong battle. And from that stronghold, from that fortress, he wants to call the shots in your life. So what is a stronghold? What are strongholds? You'll have this definition up on the screen. A stronghold is a place, when we think of it spiritually, of continual sin, where we never seem to gain the complete victory in our lives. It's kind of like a, a chink in our armor. A place where we continue to return to even when we don't want to down deep inside. Do you have any chinks in your armor? Are there any weak spots? Are there any places of continual sin? Things that you have a hard time resisting? Maybe it's a spirit of lust of immoral thoughts, so much so that maybe there's no one in the world that knows 
the struggle you have with your thought life. Maybe it is some kind of a habit. Even one of those glorified, quote, Christian habits, like overeating at Thanksgiving. Only it's not just Thanksgiving. It's too much of the time. Maybe it is a habit. Maybe it is our language. Maybe sometimes we have a hard time controlling and taming our tongue. And it's not just the fact that we use improper language. Maybe we use good language improperly in the way that we talk about other people and the things that we say. Maybe it's a spirit of anger. Anyone here struggle with anger? Oh, it's just natural for me. My mama was a redhead, and so was my grandpa. I inherited it. Surely God's not going to hold me accountable for that. Maybe it's a spirit of unforgiveness, holding a grudge. Maybe it's a spirit of fear, of fear. Maybe I am an incessant worrier, fearful. Maybe it's the sin of procrastination. Do we have any procrastinators here? And have you ever thought about the fact that procrastination will wreck your walk with God? It can wreck your marriage if you let it. It can hurt every relationship you have. And yet, who would ever put that on the big, bad, seven deadly sins list? Maybe it's a spirit of pride. You know, that shows up in a lot of different ways. It doesn't always show up by you bragging about how you're better than everybody else. Did you know that the person who continually puts themselves down and thinks lowly of themselves, that that is the spirit of pride also? Paul talks about in the book of Romans chapter 12. He said, don't think too highly of yourself, but also don't think too lowly of yourself. Both of them are expressions of pride. The, the key is, don't think of yourself so much. That's how you defeat pride. Maybe it's the sin of impatience and you have a stronghold in your life and that you just get irritated with everybody around you because you have an impatient spirit. It can be many of a thousand different things. I just listed for you my strongholds and thought maybe that might spill over on some of you too. You see the word in the Greek language. It's stronghold, by the way, is in the Bible. And we'll read that verse in a minute. <clears throat> but understand that in the Greek, it's the word okurama. Okurama. Now, I know that blesses you all the way down to your toenails. But it describes that strong fortress or a castle. And in our lives, these attitudes and these habits can become strongholds that instead of us controlling them and the power of the Spirit, they are controlling us. And from those strongholds, Satan is calling the shots in our lives. So how do they develop? Where do they come from? 
Now understand, he attacks our weaknesses. Satan is a, is a master strategist. His army, they know how to do their work. And they do it a lot, a lot uh, like how <clears throat> an army will do its work. It will probe the enemy in a hundred different places until it finds a weakness, until it finds the chink in the armor. And then he will focus his army right there. That's why Ephesians 4.27 says this, a very simple six-word command for us, give no opportunity to the devil. Don't give the devil an opportunity. The word opportunity means a place, a precise spot or situation, uh, a position, a, an opportunity, a Kind of like this. Don't give the devil a toehold in your life. He's like that pushy vacuum cleaner salesman that comes and knocks on your door and you open the door and before you know it, he's got his toe in the door and you can't close it back and then he pushes his way in and he dumps his dirt all over your floor. That's what the devil does. You see, I didn't know vacuum cleaner salesmen went door to door. Well, they used to. They used to before you had Amazon and could order one online. Don't give the devil room to work. If you struggle with alcohol, stay out of the bar for Pete's sake. Don't say I'm just going there for fellowship to hang out with the guys and to watch the football game. That's stupid. You have trouble with pornography? Then watch out what you do with your computer. And don't go just strolling around and, and what are you, surfing around. <laughs> stroll. Some people just stroll around on their computers. Some of us run our way right through it. But don't go sailing, strolling, surfing, or anything else. Because guess what? It can read you. There's things called algorithms and the devil's in control of every bit of it. And next thing you know, you'll have dirt popping up on your computer when you're not even looking for it. In your email. Don't give place to the devil. You have trouble with worldly thoughts and bad and foul language? Be careful who you hang around with. Just don't give the devil an opportunity to work in your life. That's a commandment of the Lord. And you and I mess around with, and we squirrel around with, and we hang around with satanic influence so much because somehow we're just kinda, we kind of get a buzz from that. And the next thing you know, guess what we've done? We've lost it again. We've given the devil a toehold. You see, it happens like this. It starts off is a thought. You have that thought. Man, I'd like to do this. I know I shouldn't do this, but you think of it. There's a temptation that comes to your mind. You, you see something. There's a trigger point, whatever. It's a thought. And if you dwell on it, that thought makes a very subtle change that it's not... Listen, you cannot help what pops into your head. But you have full control of the spirit of what stays in your head. And a thought, if you allow it to stay, becomes a consideration. That's when you begin to weigh it. Well, what if I do? 
what if I don't? And once you start to weigh it, once you start to consider it, guess what? You'll develop an attitude about it. And that attitude will go like this. Well, you know what? It's my life. It's nobody else's business. I can control this. I'll just do it once. Whatever. It's my life. I'll do what I please. And once you develop an attitude, guess what? It's a guaranteed thing. You're going to perform the action, whatever it is. Once you form an attitude, you'll commit the act. And once you commit the act enough times, it will become a habit. Thought, consideration, attitude, action, habit. That's how a stronghold uh, develops in your life. Write this down. Strongholds develop in any area of life that is not fully surrendered to Christ. That's why we say you need to surrender to the Lordship of Christ over all of your life. Don't segment your life. Don't divide it up into pieces like you cut a pie and say, well, this part belongs to God, but this part is my part, or this part is somebody else's part, and their influence in my life. Listen, if Jesus is not Lord of all in your life, Jesus is not Lord at all in your life. Any area of life, any ground, unsurrendered to Christ, becomes a target for the enemy. Your finances... Is Jesus the Lord of your finances? If not, if you're not obeying Him in the area of your finances, if you don't see that not just 10%, but that all you possess belongs to God, your finances will forever be a thorn in your side. Your TV life, what you watch on TV, what you are willing to be entertained by, Visually, whether it's your computer, your TV, or the movie theater. Listen, this is an area where many Christians today totally leave God out. Because after all, it's just entertainment, right? It's just entertainment. But you allow yourself to be entertained. We allow ourselves to be entertained by the very sins that Jesus died to deliver us from. Oh, I would never do that. I just enjoy watching others do it in the movie or on TV. I'd never talk like that, but I let others talk in horrible ways, and it fills my heart, and it fills my mind, and it fills me. It entertains me. Any area of your life, entertainment, food, drink, finances, any area, unsurrendered, to God becomes a target of the enemy in your life. <clears throat> Around my house, we laugh at this statement sometimes because it's been used by preachers so much, but it still holds true. It was true about the prodigal son. It's true about you and me. Be careful where you let the devil work. Why? Because sin will always take you farther than you meant to go. It'll always keep you longer than you wanted to stay. It'll always cost you more than you intended to pay.
That's the problem with sin. I've kept you too long, but I need to give you point number three because it's the good news. So far, you've heard the bad news. Spiritual warfare is real. Satan's wiles are real. There's a third reality, and this is where we rejoice, and this is where we rest. The Savior's work is real. Amen? The Savior's work. Understand this, folks. The war has already been won. Say that with me. The war has already been won. Say it again. The war has already been won. Say it with conviction like you believe it. The war... Well, then why are we fighting it? Well, spiritually it's been won. But we still have a physical body, right? Still pinch yourself. Pinch yourself. We're still in a physical body. And because of that, we live in a physical world. And so that war that is a spiritual warfare is at work in the world around us. We are still in the middle of the fray. We understand that we are the church militant, that while we are here today worshiping the Lord, we are the church militant, meaning we're still in the battle, we're still in this life, in a mystical union, in the communion of saints. This is why worship is so important. You should never miss a Sunday morning service unless you're just providentially hindered. Understand that while you were here, while we are here, we are in some way we can't understand. We are joining with the church triumphant in heaven in the worship of the Lord. As the gathered church, the ecclesia of God. But the Savior's work is real. Do you remember these words from Ephesians 2, 5 through 7, where it talks about how we've been saved by grace? Starts off talking about us being dead in our sins, but we're saved by grace. And then it says, beginning in verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with Christ. Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Notice, notice that when we are saved, we are made alive with Christ. We are raised up with Christ. We are seated with him with Christ in the heavenlies. That's the spiritual reality. Now also understand 1 John 3, 8. Notice what it says. The reason the Son of God appeared, the reason He came to this world, was to destroy the works of the devil. When He hung on the cross, what did He say? It is what? He finished His work. He had destroyed the work of the devil. Hebrews 2.14 He himself, Jesus, likewise partook of flesh and blood that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and to deliver all those, that you and me, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Man, that's so clear. 
He destroyed the works of the devil and he delivered you and me. Colossians 2.15. This is particularly descriptive if you understood the, the Greek context and the wording here. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. What is the scene there? When Rome defeated an enemy, if they were able to capture the king or the commander, whatever army that they defeated, they would keep that person, in some cases, some cases it would be several persons, alive. And that army would come back to Rome. And outside of Rome, they would polish up their armor. They would clean their uniforms. And they would march. And the commander of the Roman army would have a leather rope. And around the end of that rope would be a noose or would be a loop around the neck of the uh, king or the uh, general that they defeated and they would strip him naked to his shame and they would walk him through the streets to the shouts and proclamations of greatness and it's using that very same language to say that Jesus disarmed and defeated the enemy Satan and he led him in shame before the angels of heaven but remember that even though all of that is already accomplished, we've got to flesh it out in life. We've got to fight the battles, and he's willing to help us. Now listen, 2 Corinthians 10 tells us this, beginning in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy what? To destroy strongholds. Did you get that? That the weapons of our warfare are strong to tear down the strongholds in your life and my life. To break those old habits. To destroy the work of the devil that's been at work inside our lives and our families. In the same way that those strongholds went up, one brick, one stone at a time, they will come down in the same way, one victory after another. But the weapons of our warfare are what give us victory. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought, where do we say that habits and all these strongholds began as a thought, and take every thought captive to obey Christ instead of responding to the devil. We can take every thought captive. Well, just remember this key truth. Spiritual warfare requires spiritual weapons. You can't fight the devil with psychological warfare. You can't outmaneuver the devil. He's stronger than you are. You can't outthink the devil. No matter how much good advice you get from the smartest people that know about life and living, you can't do it that way. You only defeat the devil with spiritual weapons. Why? Because we're fighting spiritual warfare. Well, what are our spiritual, supernatural weapons? Here are six. The Word of God. It is our sword of the Spirit, right? The Word of God. 
Number two, the name of Jesus. In a time of temptation, call out the name of Jesus. Say to the enemy, in the name of Jesus, I resist you. Not only that, but the blood of Jesus. It is the blood, the shed blood of Jesus that has defeated the works of darkness and of the enemy. Number four, the power of the Holy Spirit in your life and mine. He is an ever-present help in our time of need. Number six, the privilege of prayer. Isn't that what he said in Ephesians 6? After he gave all the armor, praying with all supplication. Don't ever forget to pray. Prevail in prayer. And number six, the Christian's armor. The Christian's armor. That was listed for us in our text. That's how you fight the devil. Now understand, all of that, that's hands-on weaponry. That's weaponry that we can use. But understand, that has to be matched up with an attitude of the heart that is right before God. This is not on the text, but write this down. James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. James tells us these are the attitudes you have to have to do battle with the devil. But God gives more grace, he says in verse 6. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, there's coming ten verbs. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. That means repent of your sins. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Ask God to cleanse your heart, you double-minded. Then he says, be wretched and mourn and weep. He's talking about a spirit of repentance. He's talking about a spirit of grieving over our sins. Let your laughter be turned. That's where repentance takes place. Make the turn. Be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. The whole attitude begins with surrendering to God and ends with submitting to God. In between, let your heart be turned to mourning and repentance. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Surrender to God. Draw near to God. That's how to fight spiritual warfare. Well, there you have it. God's not left us to Satan's uh, snares and conniving manipulations, but rather... He warns us. He warns us to fight against Him and to offer ourselves to Christ as our only rescue and salvation. Regardless of what stronghold is present in your life, Jesus will remove it. He will heal the wounded spirit that may have caused it.
and he'll mend the broken heart and he will defeat the devil in your life. And it all hinges upon you and me being willing to fight the good fight. Amen? The sad truth of the matter is this. It's caught in a little poem. Some men die by shrapnel. Some go down in flames. But most men by, die inch by inch playing silly little games. May we give as much attention and as much discipline to fighting the enemy of our souls than trying to find happiness in a world that can never provide it. Father, thank you so much for your son Jesus Christ. Thank you for the victory that was won at the cross. Thank you that you've destroyed the works of the enemy. I pray that we would enter into that victory every single day as we seek to live for you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.